just begin by saying good morning again, everybody, and I want to say welcome also to those of you who are joining us by video right now. Some of you are in our traditional sanctuary right now, and I'm really glad that you're here, that we're connected together as one church family growing together in God's Word. And I want to welcome you if you're joining us by video right now. Some of you are online, and I just want to say welcome to you. And also, if you're ever in the area, you're welcome to come be a part of Community of Grace in person in the flesh. Stop by anytime. I'm really glad that you're there. Hey, we're all learning together. We're all growing together. We're continuing in a series that's called According to Luke. We're reading a story of Jesus' life that was written a long, long time ago by a guy named Luke. The story is called The Gospel According to Luke. It's kind of a biography of Jesus. And I want to remind you, if you've been here before, I'm reminding you, there is a brochure out at our information desk that kind of tells you where we've been so far and where we're going. You can follow along. There's a list on the back that kind of is a checklist of things that we're learning together. So you got to check that off and hopefully solidify your learning. And on the inside is a daily reading guide. So you can kind of keep up in your own Bible reading with what we're doing together each week. And that reading guide goes through the end of this year, through about Christmas time, and uh, we'll make a new one for 2018. And speaking of this series we're in all the time, every Sunday, we open and we learn from the Bible together. So I, if you have a Bible with you, now's a good time to pick that up off the floor, wherever you got it, put it on the seat next to you or in your lap. If you have your phones or tablets, want to open your Bible app, now's a great time. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 4. And then if you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to use one, our ushers are coming up the aisles in both of our worship venues. And you can just borrow a Bible during this hour, and I'll give you page numbers and stuff so it's real easy to find during the service. And then you can just put that Bible on the back, on the shelf at the back of each of our worship venues at the end of the service today. If you want to open your Bibles up right now, if you want to hold your place, we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 4, which is on page 1505 uh, in those Quest Bibles. And we're going to get back to that in just a few minutes. For the last few weeks, if you've been here, let me remind you, if you're new here, let me catch you up. We have begun reading this biography of Jesus. We're trying to fill our minds and hearts with the story and the stories of Jesus' life to help us learn how to think and live like Christians. And we have been learning the prologue to Jesus' story so far. We heard about the angelic announcements to Elizabeth and to Mary that they were going to have babies named John and Jesus. How, how many of you who have had children, did angels do your birth announcements for you? Did they do that pregnancy? Right? So we heard about those stories. We heard that this uh, John, who was sometimes called, he's sometimes called John the Baptist, we, that he was born and Jesus was born. And we read this story two weeks ago about the baptism of Jesus and the teaching of this guy named John. And then last week, Pastor Angie taught us about the temptation of Jesus. And all of this, I think, functions in this story of Jesus, according to Luke, as a prologue for the public launch of Jesus' life that happens today. And one thing, if you've been here before, one thing you may have noticed over the course of all those stories is how often Jesus himself or Luke, his biographer, says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God did this or did that, that the Spirit, that Elizabeth was full of the Spirit and she rejoiced, that the Spirit anointed Jesus, that the Spirit did all these things. And maybe you have wondered to yourself, who exactly is that? Like, what kind of character is that Spirit? What does the Spirit do now? In a couple of weeks, starting on October 22nd, we're going to do what we're going to do a couple times throughout the series and stop over a topic and pause on that and talk about it. So in two weeks, on October 22nd, we're going to start a few weeks of answering those questions and discussing that together. Who is this spirit character? What is the spirit? What does the spirit do? What does it mean to be spiritual? Is there, what is spirituality? And I want to ask you a question in advance of that series two weeks out. Do you know anybody who's interested in that topic? Like, do you know any people that if you search their browsing history at Amazon, they read books about spirituality 
or they listen to podcasts about spirituality, or if they still go to books and bricks and mortar stores at, at Barnes and Noble, you'd see them in the spirituality section. If so, I just want you to think about, maybe pray about, what, are they somebody that you might want to invite to join you in two weeks to learn about that? I think that what the Bible has to say about a Jesus-centered spirituality is deeply helpful, is deeply good and helpful to humanity. And it may be that you have a friend or family member who would really, it'd be a favor that you were doing for them by inviting them to join us for that series. So I just want to invite you to think about that, maybe pray about that. We'll start in two weeks on October 22nd. Today, we are going to read a story of how the Spirit called Jesus, anointed Jesus to proclaim a word of deep and abiding hope to people who needed hope, to announce there's a light at the end of the tunnel to people who are living in a tunnel of darkness. Have any of you ever gone through a tunnel? I don't even mean like a metaphorical, I mean like an actual, physical, literal tunnel. You drove through a tunnel, you hiked through a tunnel, something like that. When I was a kid, we used to go at least once a year, usually more than that, we would drive from my home in Cleveland, Ohio, to my grandparents' house in Kingsport, Tennessee. I've told some of you this story before, and, or stories about them before, and we would drive down through three different mountain tunnels along the way, and they totally stressed me out. I was always afraid the tunnel was going to collapse on our car, and we were never going to come back out, and there's a whole mountain above you. What holds that up, you know? And we would drive through the Memorial, the memorial Tunnel, the Big Walker Mountain Tunnel, and the East River Mountain Tunnel. It's been like 25 or 30 years since I drove through those. I still know the names. That's how scary they were for me, all right? And so I decided I would Google this so I could show you a picture. And I found this picture of the Memorial Tunnel on Interstate 77 in West Virginia. Do you understand why I was scared <laughs> to drive through that tunnel? And now the highway goes around and over the mountain rather than through, proving that I was right <laughs> the whole time. But I remember as a kid, I would be in the backseat of the car, peering out the windshield, looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Waiting to get out of that tunnel. And when we did, I remember that my breath would get slower and deeper once we were finally out of the tunnel, which also proves that I had no Christian love for the people behind me in the tunnel <laughs> upon whom it still might fall, right? I think there's a reason that when we talk about hope in our lives, we talk about a light at the end of the tunnel. I grew up knowing what that felt like. So, now let me ask you, are you going through any other kind of tunnels in life? Have you gone through any tunnels, you know what that feels like, where you're like, I need some light at the end of this tunnel? We pray together as Christians for the things that happened, the tragedies like they were this week. Maybe, you, maybe it was about seven days ago, you heard about that shooting in Las Vegas, right? And it's just crushing. I, don't, I think it's actually maybe more tragic that sometimes seven days later, these reports are getting so common that now it's like, yeah, that was last week's news. That's even darker, I think. And it's hard even to know how to pray about these sometimes. In my, in my morning prayers, in my normal prayer life, I have this one prayer that I, I pray regularly, and it comes from the Psalms, and it says, oh God, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, make haste to help us. And sometimes that's all I know how to pray for stuff like this. I'm like, God, save us, and I wouldn't mind if you would do it soon. <laughs> make speed make haste to help us. And we pray about these things in our world. Sometimes I think the darkness is not only in the larger world, but we encounter it in the personal stuff of our lives. I know that in some of your stories that you guys have gone through periods of long-term illness. There's like chronic pain. There's one surgery after another. There's long-term hospitalizations. There's cancer, there's disease, there's disability. And that stuff is just, in addition to the actual physical ailments of it all, it is just wearying. It is tiring on our souls. 
And if you're in the middle of that right now, or you have been, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, I'm in a tunnel, and I, I need to see some light at the end of that tunnel. Or it happens to us in financial situations where it's like, man, I got this debt load and I got expenses coming and I keep pulling on both ends trying to make them meet and they don't meet in the middle and it's been like that for a long time and it is just wearying, it is tiring, right? And it happens, I know, in the lives of us in our church family that it happens in our relationships. There can be all kind of relational pain. For some of us, it's just long-term loneliness. It's like I just need people in my life, I need someone, I need and that can be so tiring. It's like this dusk that settles over our lives so that we almost forget what hope and light looks like. And it can happen in loneliness and it can happen in relationship. It can happen in our marriages. It stinks when it happens in our marriages too is where the relationship that's supposed to be, you know what it's supposed to be like and you just can't get it like that and there's this long-term fight and the toxicity and sometimes just really destructive and dangerous stuff and that can be so, such a long tunnel. And man, we could use light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I learned something in the last season of my life, thinking about the wider world again, that I didn't know about the, the international refugee crisis, which is still a crisis around the world, even though the news has largely stopped talking about it. Do you know how long it is that a refugee family or a refugee individual, when they flee from violence in their home country, trying to find someplace else, they'll often wind up in a UN refugee camp. Do you know what the average length of stay is in a refugee camp before getting resettled? 17 years, 17 years. That's like a whole generation, right? Imagine watching a whole generation die and a new one be born while you're wondering if you ever would live someplace permanent again, right? Long, dark tunnels. And they come in all shapes and sizes. They come, they're tailor-made for every one of our individual lives, right? And if you've ever gone through something that feels like that, if you've ever felt like that, if you feel like that right now, you are in the same place as the people that Jesus was talking to in the story that we are going to read today when he announces a word of hope, a light at the end of the tunnel, and I would love to tell you about it. I want to read it together. So if you, if you have a Bible with you, if you picked up a Bible, open it with me right now. We're going to be reading in Luke chapter 4. Again, it's on page 1505 of these Bibles. At one point, we're going to turn the page. So 1505 and 1506, we're going to be all morning long, and you can just kind of keep that open right there. While you're turning your page, I'll remind you that what happens in this scene is that Jesus is coming to a synagogue. So a, a place of worship, right? Every Saturday, Jesus went to church every weekend. It was Saturday in a synagogue, and then it became Sunday in a church. And I want to read you a story about what Jesus did when he came to the synagogues of Galilee, the area where he grew up. We're going to start in Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee from the places where he was in Judea in the south in his baptism and his temptation. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, right? We're going to talk about that. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Jesus was real popular at this moment. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his own hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. A great Old Testament prophet. Probably one of the most influential prophets in the Bible. Unrolling it, he found the place in the scroll of Isaiah where this is written. Where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he went like this, boom, and he dropped the mic. Just like that. <laughs> I mean, boom, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus announced this tremendous word of hope. He said, the spirit is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. To those of you who are at the bottom of the heap and don't know how to put stuff together to make your way out, to those of you who are long-term suffering and you're at the bottom, I'm telling you that you believe that nobody cares. Everybody's forgotten you, but I'm telling you God cares. God sees your plight. He knows and he cares. And what's happening right now is not what will happen forever. And, and here's an evidence that how, of how God cares. When we, read the story of, when we read the story of Jesus according to Luke, there comes a volume two. Luke actually wrote a second volume. The title of it is Acts, okay? And at the beginning of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Spirit, the Acts of the Church, at the beginning of that book, Luke tells us about the birth of the early Christian communities. And one of the things he says about them in those early chapters is that among them, there were no needy persons among them, the Bible says. And that's not because they didn't let any poor people in. It's because when anyone had need, somebody who had stuff shared with the one who had need. And then later, that person who had stuff who shared, maybe they had need, and somebody shared with them. It was like what the Apostle Paul wrote in another letter later on. He said, my desire is not that somebody else should have, so you don't have any more. It's just that we'd all have, so there'd be equality among us. Jesus said, I came to announce good news to the poor. And he went on, I came to the Spirit of the Lord is on me to declare freedom from oppression, freedom to the oppressed, and recovery of sight to the blind, and release to the captives. And I think Jesus meant those things in literal ways because he lived that out in his life in literal ways. But I also don't think that's meant to be an exhaustive list, right? Like that's the only things on Jesus' rescue list. It's meant to be a representative list. And he sums it up with a really interesting phrase. I came to announce the year of the Lord's favor, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Let me try to explain that phrase for a second. Some of you may have heard the, the word Sabbath before. Sabbath. Sabbath is part of the, the law of the Old Testament, the, the guideline for life that God gave the people of Israel thousands and thousands of years ago. He said every seventh day is to be a Sabbath day, to honor the Lord and a day of rest. And on this Sabbath day, you shall do no work, right? It's like the weekend, right? It's like a light at the end of every seven-day tunnel. How many of you have ever experienced a light at the end of the tunnel on Friday afternoon? Or, right? You know what that feels like? I know what that feels like. For me, it's Thursday afternoon because I take Fridays off, and then kind of the weekend comes, and I start over again. But man, sometimes Thursday afternoon, I'm like, man, I'm looking forward to spending tonight with my family, having a little rest, right? Light, light at the end of the tunnel, right? But in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, the giving of the law in the Old Testament, God's very clear with his people that this is not only for you, but it's for everybody around you, everybody who labors to make your life better than it would have been otherwise. It's for the servants in your household, for the slaves in your society. It's even for the animals. Everybody is supposed to get a little light at the end of the tunnel, not just you, right? This goes so far that at the end of every seven years, God says there's supposed to be a Sabbath year. So you're supposed to give the land a break, right? Sow enough crops, store up, so that on this year, you wouldn't even have to. You could give the land a break because it's got a long, dark tunnel of providing nutrients from the soil into the crops, and it's all depleted, and you got to let it lie fallow for a year. Turns out that's actually good science, too. It extends to people, to all people, even to animals, even to the earth, right? And then, in the Old Testament, it says that after every seven cycles of seven years, okay? So after 49 years, there's a 50th year, and this come to be called the Jubilee year. And in the Sabbath of Sabbath years, debts are canceled, 
Slaves are set free. Land is returned to its ancestral families. Sometimes people would wind up in a jam. They'd wind up in a bind. And, and the whole inheritance of the, of the ancient Israelites was in the land. And they would sell their families birthright. They would sell their family's inheritance to somebody else so they could make it through. And you know what happens when somebody starts getting a little bit more and they can grow more crops and their profits get bigger and bigger and they can buy more land? And every 50 years, God says, we're going to have a little reset button on that system, right? And it's a gift of mercy, it's a gift of compassion. So you don't get all jammed up in this and it becomes a permanent situation. It's like a rescue. Now, you should know that as far as I know, and I'm pretty confident about this, there is no known historical evidence that anybody ever actually did this, right? Nobody ever practiced this, not Israel in the Old Testament, not anybody ever since, as far as I know, right? But the Israelites did write this down. They recorded it. They left it in their Bible as what they thought God wanted from them. And Jesus comes and he says, I am here to declare to you the year of the Lord's favor. It's fulfilled in your hearing right now. And I don't think it's because it had been 50 years since whatever, since anything. It was because it was the season of God's favor. It was the time of the coming of God's kingdom and the presence of the Spirit in Jesus and among his people. And Jesus said, God's great rescue, God's great cleanup, the beginning of God's kingdom on this world, it begins now in me and in the community gathered around me. It was a real announcement of God's heart. Jesus said, this is what God is up to. This is what God is like. This is what God is up to in me. And I should tell you, I don't think you'll be surprised, you may know, there were plenty of other people also in Jesus' day who were willing to speak for God who were willing to tell people, this is what God is like. God wants to do this and that. And you know what Jesus said about them? Later, we'll read about it in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, you tie up heavy burdens and place them on other people's backs, burdens you yourselves are not willing to bear. You talk about God and make burdens for people. I'm telling you that it is the year of the Lord's favor. And there are still people today, right? Plenty of people who are willing to speak for God and create all kinds of pictures of God. I believe in Jesus' picture of God. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I believe his picture of God. And you know why? It's not just because he said so. Lots of people say stuff, right? But Jesus, first of all, he embodied it in his life. He lived this, right? He lived a life of good news for the poor and welcome for the outcast and grace for the sinner and recovery of sight for the blind. He, not only, he lived it, he embodied it in his life, and then he lived it as he died it, right? He died in the long, dark tunnel with people. He came into the darkest parts of human existence, and he died a death that was not even, not even legally allowed for good citizens of the empire. It was only allowed for slaves and outcasts and people of no status. And Jesus died that death. He was crucified. He was killed with us and for us. And he went through the dark tunnel underground until on the third day, God said, there's a light at the end of that tunnel. And he raised Jesus from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead and then he raised him to his own right hand and put him on his throne and, seat, and seated him on the throne as the world's true Lord and King, to say this is what God is really up to, to vindicate the person and the way and the hope of Jesus. And so we believe this is what God is really like, that God is a God of compassion and mercy, that God is a, a good and gracious heavenly Father who runs after all his lost children and brings us back from wherever we were, brings us back from wherever we are lost, and it is his will to restore his broken people and his broken world. Are any of you in those tunnels? Are you in those tunnels like the people in Nazareth were in those tunnels? From time to time, I think most of us walk through tunnels of guilt. Maybe that's how you're feeling right now. You feel like, man, I know what I did. I screwed up. I know who I hurt. And it is heavy. 
and it is dark, and maybe you've got a list of all those things, right? And Jesus says there is grace for you. Jesus says the worst chapters of your story, the worst chapters of your story are not the end of your story. Rather, my people, this is the place for you because Jesus is the Savior for you. There is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And sometimes that tunnel gets real long, right? So much so that we don't even just think anymore about the things that we messed up. We don't just think, hey, I messed up. We start to think, I am a mess up, right? I'm messed up. And we start to think, I'm not even worthy of God's love anymore. Maybe I, I might walk into a church, but it might fall down if I did, so I probably better not, right? Because I'm just that unworthy of being part of the people, that unworthy of God's love, that unworthy of grace. And Jesus comes to give us a new name, a new identity. That's not true. You're not defined by the worst things that you did, by the things that you think you are. That's not your name anymore. Your name is not mess up. Your name is sister and brother and child of God. And we're not defined by our brokenness. We're defined by God's love. In Jesus Christ, God constitutes the people around him. This is the place for you because Jesus is the Savior for you. The tunnels come in all different shapes and sizes, right? Your tunnel might be addiction. Maybe your tunnel's broken relationships. Maybe your tunnel is hopelessness and despair and anger and bitterness. But in the grace of Jesus Christ and in the power of God's Spirit, I believe that there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And the name of that light is Jesus. Jesus is the light at the end of that tunnel. And I want to invite you in whatever tunnel you're in to receive him, to receive that light and to receive that hope and to put your trust in him to create that because he will give you life, to allow Jesus to be your hope and to allow Jesus to be the leader of your life from this day forward. And for some of you, maybe that's not something you've ever experienced before. Maybe you've wondered about it. Maybe you've explored it. But this would be an opportunity for you. And if that is a first step with Jesus for you, I celebrate the creation of new life in you. I celebrate this life and this grace and this mercy and this hope with you. And maybe for others of us, it's kind of a returning to God after a period of the darkness creeping in. And I celebrate the creation of life in you and in us. And maybe for some of us, it's really just a matter of celebrating that hope that we hang on to even when we can see the darkness creeping in, whatever it is. If you're ready to take some first or next steps with Jesus and you don't know what to do next, how to walk that out, one recommendation for you would be to stop by the orange wall after the service today. There's some people out there who are there specifically to help you with stuff like that. Maybe give you some ideas for some next steps to take, connect you with one of our pastors if you'd like to talk to somebody about that. Jesus was in Nazareth and he proclaimed this incredible, deep, and abiding word of hope. And you may not be surprised to know that the crowd loved it. The people there, they ate it up. It was like water on thirsty ground for them. Here's what they said. If your Bible's still open, this is Luke 4, 22. Luke tells us, all spoke well of him, of Jesus, and they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. In this Joseph's son, they asked. Right? You can imagine those words maybe in admiration, like, man, I can't believe that's Joseph's little boy. Look what he turned out to be. Right? I, I wonder if maybe there's a little bit of doubt too, like, wait a minute, isn't that Joseph's son? He's not so special. Where'd he get off saying stuff like that? And Jesus had to also bring them some challenge. See, there's, there's one more piece of the story, and, and we won't get the story right unless we hear the end of this story. Jesus brought them also a word of challenge. Now, I want to read it to you right here. It's Luke 4, and I'm going to read you verses 24 through 30. You can follow. We're on page 1506 right now. This is what Jesus said. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And this was Jesus' hometown right here. I assure you, he said, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Now, Elijah is another great prophet of God hundreds of years before. There were plenty of widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut 
for three and a half years in this great drought, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which is outside of Israel. And there were many in Israel, Jesus continued, with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Elisha is the successor to Elijah. I'm not sure if that's helpful or confusing. <laughs> Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You see, Jesus knew that the rescue and the grace and the hope of God were not just for the good people of Nazareth, but they were also for Sidonian widows and Syrian lepers. And you know, it turns out that the good people of Nazareth were less excited about that than Jesus was, all right? They didn't want to hear about Sidonian widows and Syrian lepers. They wanted to hear about the good news of God for them. And they responded to Jesus' challenge in what I can only describe as an angry, violent, racist mob. And they drove Jesus out of the town. They wanted to kill him right then and there. And I think it's important for Christians today to understand that this was on the top of Jesus' agenda from the beginning of his public ministry. It's what he said right there when he launched the whole thing. I think it's important for us to know this because racism is one of humanity's most deep-seated sins. As far as I know, it has plagued every society I've ever heard of in every period of history. It continues to plague our world around the globe today. And honest to goodness, it has boiled up to the surface in our country recently in a way that I can't remember experiencing previously in my own lifetime. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be light at the end of the tunnel people for others. As followers of Jesus, this word is as relevant to us today as it ever was. Jesus said that the hope of God and the rescue of God is for everyone, even the Sidonians and the Syrians and everybody else that you're thinking of right now. And by drawing on the Old Testament scriptures to make this point, by quoting from Isaiah the prophet and telling the stories of Elijah and the stories of Elisha, Jesus taught people then, as he teaches us now, to believe that it has always been the heart of God. It's always been the intention of God to be the God of all people, not just the God of one people. It's always been the heart of God to regather all of humanity, divided as we have been, into the family of God in Jesus the Messiah together. And if we're followers of that Jesus the Messiah, then we're called to be light at the end of the tunnel people for people who are still experiencing the tunnel in whatever form or shape it takes in their lives. And we understand, we learn from him in this episode that it's not enough for the grace and the rescue of God to reach us. It's a beautiful place to start. <laughs> it's a great place to start. It's a life-changing, heart-changing, wonderful place to start. And I hope that it starts for all of us at some point. It's just a terrible place to end. And the people in Nazareth, they thought it should end there. And they got mad when Jesus wanted to move on from there. As followers of Jesus, we are called to embody this grace and rescue of God. We're called to be light at the end of the tunnel people, to care about people who still see no hope. And while the ultimate, the ultimate, permanent, deep, eternal healing of God's world really is in God's hands and it is in God's time, still we are called to embody it here 
and now. We are called to be a foretaste of the future to come, to be a witness to the future that God intends. We are called to embody it and to bear witness to it now, to bear witness to our faith, not that Jesus will hopefully maybe one day be Lord, but that Jesus is Lord, the guy who taught this stuff and lived this way and died that death and was raised again from the dead, that he is Lord of us, all of us, together here and now. And you know what? The strategies and the tactics that are required to live that out in a big country, in a broader society, I don't know them all. <laughs> I don't know. They're matters of debate, and we should debate it and figure it out. And I'm not so sure that in our country and in our world we're having that debate very well right now. But as Christians, I believe we have a contribution to make to that. I think there's something that we know. We believe that God's rescue and that God's heart is for everyone. And I know there are people willing to speak for God, and there are people who claim the name of Christ who aren't real clear on that right now. I think Jesus makes it clear for us here. I think we know this, that according to Jesus, release from captivity, freedom from oppression, good news for the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, this is for everyone. This much we know. And I pray God make it so. God make it so in us, and God make it so in his world. Let's pray for that. Good and gracious God, we believe that you are good and gracious in the midst of all the pain and all the hurt in our world. You've come to us in the person of Jesus. You took on flesh and you dwelled among us and you got into our tunnels. We're so grateful. You got onto our path so you could bring us onto yours so that we would know at the end of death is life, at the end of the tunnel is light. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Please send us, please send us your own presence to the power of your Holy Spirit to create new life in us and God, we pray that as your love has poured out to us, that it would so also pour out through us, that you would cause it to be so that your grace does not only come to us and stop there. I pray that you would bring it to us and that you would reassure us of who we are in you and then that you would flow through us and you would make us a witness to your grace for the sake of your broken world. We pray for your grace and your healing now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.